Hello, it's Caroline. I'm just here to tell you that this episode that you're about to listen to was recorded during a time when I still used Patreon. I do not use Patreon anymore, but you can find helpful resources by going to thefuckadiet.com slash more. You can also read the beginning of the Fuck a Diet book for free from my site. Lastly, this podcast is extremely messy. And it was actually intentionally messy and unstructured because that was the only way I could inspire myself to start and continue this podcast. I needed the lowest stakes possible. And though this podcast remains very low budget and has remained messy throughout the years until now, if you want slightly more structured and streamlined episodes, listen to the more recent episodes. All right, enjoy. Hello, today is a very special episode of the Fuck a Diet Radio, or no, shit, shit, it's not called the Fuck a Diet Radio. Today is a very special episode of the Fuck It Diet Podcast, which may also be renamed in the next couple of weeks or months, or who even knows really, because this is a haphazard podcast that drives people crazy. After I posted my last episode I went on to iTunes to try and get the picture so I could post it on my Instagram and I saw some really um, upset reviews about how you know casual it is and disorganized it is and one of a couple of them were telling me to put my dog away and it's mostly just random thoughts and conversations with the dog blah 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 And half of me is like, yeah, that's exactly what, like, that is the intended energy of this podcast. There's no, there's no part of me that's trying to create some, like, really polished thing, obviously. Um, It's just the way that it is. And it's also, it, it is, my humor energy is, is that. Like, that is what I think is funny. And so I infuse it into this. And for some people, I totally understand that they're like, what the fuck? Like, this is not what I'm listening for. I want information. And for other people, it's the reason that they like me and that they like listening to the podcast. So there really is no way to win with everyone. Um, My favorite kind of humor style is like really bizarre, like Miranda Sings, sort of like where you show the turning on the camera, turning off the camera, yelling at people who are bothering you while you're doing it. And I can totally understand that that's not fun for most people to listen to. So the truth is I, you know, I am not a scientist. I'm not a clinician. I have a very specific energy and a take on diet culture and that's what it is. And I hope it helps some of you. And I hope that those of you who are like, this is the worst thing in the world can just turn it off and move along. But um, I've gotten like ever so slightly self-conscious about it after reading those reviews. If you like this podcast, be sure to leave a nice review. That would be really wonderful. Um, And if you don't, I fully support that this is not your cup of tea. Today, however, I am interviewing, or I actually interviewed her two weeks ago, but I'm uploading for you my interview with Julie Duffy Dillon. She is a non-diet and fat positive dietitian who specializes in PCOS. If you don't know what PCOS is, it is a hormonal syndrome that is associated with insulin resistance and weight gain. And a lot of people who are diagnosed with it are told to lose weight and or 
go on a diet and watch their carbs. And it can be a very triggering for lots of people. It can cause a lot of um, disordered eating in people, and it can also exacerbate already existing disordered eating. So Julie is really, really wonderful. She is going to be a wealth of knowledge for anyone who suffers with PCOS or anyone who's just curious about it. And I do want to say that my interview with her, I used... I used a new platform to interview her and my dog. Okay. So one of the things that people, oh my God, she's barking right now. One of the things that people are really annoyed with who don't like me or don't like dogs or don't like this podcast is that my dog is a huge distraction and annoying presence and can't she put her dog away. So I did. I, put my dog downstairs. I went upstairs to to record the podcast with her to record the interview, but um, my Wi-Fi was kind of weak upstairs. So it's a little bit, the sound quality is kind of not so great, which is a huge bummer to me. Though I was able to take the two tracks and edit out the dog barking that was when Molly was barking over when Julie was talking. So really, (laughs) I already had all this insecurity about how unprofessional my podcast is and how annoying and distracting it is and how annoying and distracting Molly is. And then I recorded this interview and she was like barking so much. And then I listened to the sound quality and it wasn't that great. So there's just, you know, it just continues to be the haphazard and casual and kind of janky thing that it is. And that's just, it just is, you know, this is my gift to you. This is my janky gift to you. I hope, I hope it's suitable, but really the interview is absolutely fascinating. If you've never heard the stuff that Julie's talking about, and I'm really, really excited for you to listen to it, even though it sounds a little bit janky on my end. Um, the other thing that I want to share, uh, I cut out some of our hello, hello, hellos in the beginning because it was a little long-winded especially on my end (laughs) surprise surprise and we just get right into the meat of it I basically asked Julie how she got into this work and we're off to the races so I hope you enjoy it and I will talk to you at the end of the interview and just I want to clarify something that she said in the interview I, I asked her by email to clarify something so after you listen I will I will pop back in I will say hello but for now, here is my interview with Julie Duffy Dillon. So I am a dietitian, and I also am a counselor by training. So um, I, you know, was a dietitian for three or four years, and then I decided I needed to get more prepared on actually how to help people with behavior and things like family dynamics and depression and things like that. So I got a master's in mental health counseling. And when I finished with all of that, I was like, okay, I'm never going to work with medical conditions again, except for eating disorders and food behavior. And then um, I remember I had this client with this thing called polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I'm like, oh, what do I, what do, I do for that? And I, I got my, we have this like really big nutrition book that every dietitian in the U.S. has to carry for two years of their undergrad it's called Krauss Nutrition Therapy. And it's seriously like, I don't know, it's got to be 20 pounds. It's a heavy oh. book. <laughs> and so everyone keeps it because it costs an arm and a leg. 
you know, so you keep it. Right. And then, uh, so I remember like leafing through it while she's in my office, which you never want to be that client. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like looking through it furiously. I'm like, what do I do? And there's like a little paragraph on treat it like diabetes and make sure the person, um, like help them lose weight. And at this point, I had already identified as a health at every size informed practitioner. I was really new into it, but you know, I was really already like, hey, yeah, I'm not gonna put people on diets anymore. Right. They don't work. So then I'm like, wait, if they don't work for most people, why would they work for PCOS? I'm like, right. I feel like I need to find something else. So yeah, that kind of started this quest to find another way. And um, I'm definitely standing on the shoulders of many fat activists and people in the PCOS world who have been searching for different ways. And one person in particular, her name was Monica Woolsey. She passed away in 2017, but she was a dietitian that I found um, probably about 15 years ago that was willing to take me under her wing and share some different ways to look at PCOS. She wasn't completely weight inclusive, but she considered herself herself non-diet. And so she at least had like a different way of looking at things. And she was very progressive. She was really into the research and was like, let's not wait for the FDA. Let's like dive in wow. and see what other people are doing because this is moving too slow because research is not putting money into people with ovaries. Mm. Not, yep. You know? Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> right. so that, that's what, where this kind of brings me to now. And I, now I um, love working with people with PCOS. It's actually the only types of clients that I'm currently booking at this point. And um, it's like, I feel like the PCOS world has so few non-diet, weight-inclusive, fat-positive resources that I want to make sure that, um, I don't know, we can just support as many people who um, work in that way to work in PCOS or people with PCOS to like find ways to connect with these kind of resources. Yes, I know that. I mean, it's, I just feel like it's, it's so hard for people to find. So I, I get really excited whenever I find someone that I know I can sort of direct people to. Um, and so I'm really, really, really thankful for all of the work that you do and all the work you do on social media and everything. Thanks. It's, it's um, definitely important work. So for the people who don't even know what PCOS is, and I'm imagining that there have to be some people who are listening who have no idea, what is the simplest way? It's not a simple condition, but what is the, <laughs> what is the simplest way that you just explain kind of what it is? It's a very complex condition, but it is um, an endocrine um, disorder that is a, basically a diagnosis of exclusion, which means like in order to get diagnosed with it, they need to make sure you don't have a list of other things. and um, it can be quite ambiguous and uh, most people are uncertain when they get the diagnosis. Do I really have it? But the current criteria, which will change is that um, a person needs to be meet, needs to meet two out of three of the following criteria. One, they need to have um, uh, inconsistent, irregular or heavy periods, or they're not having periods or they're really irregular or just something kind of funky going on with the cycle. And then, um, the other criteria is signs of hyperandrogenism, um, whether it's high testosterone or um, signs of high testosterone, which would be facial hair or loss of hair on the head. And then um, the last one is polycystic ovaries. So if you were following along closely, you'll notice that like you only need two out of three of those. So someone could not 
would may not have polycystic ovaries and have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is really funny. Kind of a nice trivial pursuit question, you know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but they'll eventually hopefully change the name. Who these they people are, I don't know, but they're going to eventually change the name. Um, but yeah, what so are they gonna, do, you, do we have any idea what they are changing it to? <laughs> um, <laughs> I've heard different um, ideas, like. Oh, I, I, I'm just going to be guessing, but it has something to do with androgens in the name instead of um, cysts on the ovaries because people think it starts in the ovaries and it doesn't. It starts in the hypothalamus, and that's been a big part of the problem. Is well, one of the many problems is that people are like, well, if I'm on birth control, then it fixes it, or if I get a um, hysterectomy, it fixes it, and no, because it doesn't start there. That's just one of the consequences of it. Right. And that's chasing the symptoms without actually trying to support the body from Mm -hmm. the ground up. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I I think a good amount of people who follow me and who've listened to the podcast in the past have heard me talk about how I was diagnosed with PCOS when I was 14, 15, and it was because I had a super irregular cycle. I'd sort of just gotten my period, but it didn't over the course of a year, it never really became like a, like a normal period. It was very much just spotting and it didn't come every month. And my aunt had been diagnosed with PCOS like, you know, 20 years before, um, I guess like maybe in the early eighties hmm. and they, just put her on the pill and said, don't gain weight. And when you want to have kids, we'll put you on, uh, you know, a a drug that'll help you ovulate. And she, you know, that was like the most basic, and that's what she did. And she has, she actually has triplets because the way that they, you know, gave her the, the medicine, I guess was like, you know, she ovulated a lot, but Uh, So my mom had that in the back of her mind that I might also have this if it's genetic. Um, I don't even know if it is genetic. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess most things are genetic in some way, but um, environmental, genetic, everything is a little bit environmental and genetic, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, So I, uh, and I had, I mean, who doesn't have acne as a teenager, but I had acne. I had irregular cycles. So they were like, acne is the androgens. Irregular cycles is the, you know, the other marker. And then they did do an ultrasound and I had the polycystic ovaries. Though what's interesting is that I've heard, and I really don't do a lot of research on PCOS at this point because I've focused on it so much as a teenager. Um, So that's another reason why I'm so excited to have you talk about it because I'm sort of like, ah, you know, this is what I've heard and this is what I've done. But um. I have heard that a lot, most teenagers have follicles on their ovaries and that it's not necessarily something that stays or that is a good indicator of anything being wrong. And I thought that that was really fascinating. Yeah. Like a lot of teenagers will have that and it's not something that is really should be alarming. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I, so that was the thing that started my dieting obsession and my weight obsession. That was like the thing that really kicked it into high gear. So if I had someone like you to listen to, then I think I could have avoided a lot of misery and pain. So um, 
yeah, I just really would love to change the dialogue. Me too. Well, you know, when I would love to share something like a reaction to what you said, um, if you don't mind, because no, one thing that you mentioned, like about your aunt when she got diagnosed and the basically the script they followed. Um, it's pretty much the same script in 2019. That's a teeny bit different if you were working with someone that is um, more progressive, but no, it's pretty much the same thing. And um, what people are finding that, you know, because the, the, the script is like, hey, um, lose weight or make sure you don't gain weight. Oh my gosh, don't gain weight, whatever. You know, that's right. that threatening thing. But it is passed down through families. There's an environmental connection too. Um, but yeah, it's, the, it's genetic. Like there's like this really strong connection um, uh, within families. So, um, weight is not a cause of it yet. It's like the focus of it, which is ridiculous. Right. And it's also like, that is what we kind of see across the board with weight and any sort of health thing. It's like, Oh, you've caused this with your weight as opposed to looking at potentially weight gain as a symptom, potentially it's unrelated completely. And it's, that's a whole other just genetic piece. Exactly. Um, oh yeah. One other and- thing I want to mention too about like um, being young, getting diagnosed. Um, there was like twenty in twenty eighteen. There was an evidence based guideline like release that was this, this huge deal that three thousand different PCOS specialists were a part of uh, putting together. Um, it's fat phobic as fuck. Just to FYI, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it uh, did have some different insights, and one of them was the potential to have a different way to diagnose it in the future. <coughs> Excuse me. Hold on, let me quench my thirst here. Yes. But um, one of the things that they mentioned about diagnosis um, with people who are young is it probably should be just like a maybe kind of diagnosis until someone's had um, their period for eight years Um, because of all the things you mentioned. Like it's kind of um, not certain. There may be people where it's more obvious than others, but you know, if someone Mm -hmm. is diagnosed at 14, it may not be accurate. And that until we have more um, accurate criteria to diagnose it, it's probably going to be a bit iffy until their twenties. And that's just, yeah. So like your experience, um, probably happens a lot. Although I feel like so many people don't get diagnosed until they're like trying to like start a family or something like that. Right. And because it really was my mom saying to the doctors, test this, Mm -hmm. test her for this, test her hormones. I want to, you know, like, and it was all out of love out of like, if my daughter needs, you know, special support and attention for her health, I want to give it to her now. Of course, that backfired in so many ways because the focus, as we were told, we were, I was basically told to not gain weight yeah. and to eat low carb and low fat. Oh, and so my mom was like, okay, we'll do it. You know, she- Chicken breast, have fun. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> she is, from her perspective, she's like, oh my God, how can I help my daughter be healthy and, and mm-hmm. live a good life? And from my perspective, I just basically- developed an eating disorder and there was too much focus on my weight and there was too much focus on how I ate. And I, you know, it was such a big part of my story and my experience with food and weight that led me to what is now the fuck it diet. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that they would have caught it necessarily just based on me having an irregular cycle and acne Mm -hmm. as a, as a 14, 15 year old, you know? Yeah. Um, 
And, and I started dieting and basically was constantly trying to eat a very, very small amount, always backfiring. And I was always binging. So I felt like my problem was food, but I didn't get a cycle partially at least because I wasn't eating enough, you know? So that muddies the water so much too. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Because if we don't eat enough, and our cycles start to go away. Part of the complication is testosterone goes up. And um, so, yeah, I mean, right. it's the natural side of, of malnutrition. Right. right, right. That's so fascinating. So that actually leads us into what are some big myths about PCOS and weight and carbs, I would say. Oh, yeah. Can we... I know that there's so much and there there's so much more that we won't be able to get to, but um, what are some big myths and I guess mistakes in, in the way people try and treat their own PCOS? Yes. And I, I would just want to honor too, the mistakes are because they have been led that way by yes, maybe yes, yes, yes. some kind hearted, but fat phobic uh, healthcare providers. But um, yeah. some of the big mistakes and misconceptions, we've mentioned a few of them already, is that a person caused it or they gained too much weight and that's why they got it or that they ate the wrong foods. Like none of those reasons are the cause. It is not something that a person causes. It's um, a condition, again, that's genetic. So no one, no one caused their PCOS. And then the um, big thing that I feel like people are focusing so much on with PCOS, again, we've mentioned is their focus on weight. But since weight isn't the cause, by changing weight, it's not going to take anything away. And the other side of it is for some people, they'll say, well, Julie, I feel so much better when I weigh less. Um, and I'm like, okay, that that I can appreciate that. And we just don't have a way for you to help lower your weight. Um, long term, that's actually going to be promoting health. Like we just don't have a way that I could ethically recommend. And so what we have connected in PCOS literature, there was um, some research that came out in the um, journal called Appetite in 2017, that found that weight cycling predicted binge eating and eating in um, PCOS, which was, of course, you know, you and I, Caroline, were like, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, but they were basically like, yeah, the, we are finding is binge eating disorder is really common for people with PCOS. Um, and I didn't look at the exact um, data, but I think it was is it 86% of people with PCOS or maybe 68? I'll, I'll give you a link if you want to finish that. Mm -hmm. yeah. have at least one, um, like at least subclinical binge eating disorder. And then 38% um, of people with PCOS have like a diagnosed binge eating disorder. And um, like they meet full criteria. And what um, Cleves and Jeans, the person, the people who wrote the article, they, were, they found that um, those who were focusing on weight, who were trying to weigh less, and then yo-yo dieted, um, those that predicted that basically. But yet they go on to say in that very same article that's showing how <laughs> it's problematic to push people to lose weight, that we should be encouraging people with PCOS to find sustainable weight management lifestyle change. Right. <laughs> like, right. where's right. that unicorn? That unicorn, right? <laughs> Leaves and jeans. Did we just say unicorn at the same time? Yes, we did. I feel like, oh my God. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to drink alcohol this time of day, but we should have a shot of something. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. So they they still said that, which I mean, it, it really, for me, is like the proof that how um, weight is just such a big focus. And that's 
I know it's really um, radical in PCOS to think that way about how to manage your PCOS. And I also appreciate that 90% of healthcare providers, maybe even 95% of healthcare providers that you will meet with will be f- focusing on weight. I just got back from a PCOS conference where I thought, I mean, it was pretty established at this point that we were not going to be focusing on weight, especially when it comes to adolescence. I mean, even the American Academy of Pediatrics says, do not focus on weight when you're talking right. to your patients who are adolescents and children, but yet they, that's all that they were focusing on oh the my weight God. management side. And even though people at this conference who have PCOS were saying, hey, um, that doesn't work for me. Oh, that makes me not want to go to the doctor or yeah, I had stomach amputation surgery, but all the weight has come back and more. Right. Um, what am I supposed to do? And yet there's just such a focus on like the weight instead of like, hey, what if we actually let people be fat? I got yelled at with that one. But uh, <laughs> And then oh just help God. people manage like behaviors, like because weight loss is not a behavior. And so looking toward that part, if you're, if you can, I can like just consider like, okay, what if I focus on my body as worthy of healing, worthy of healing and not focusing on weight. What I encourage my clients with PCOS to do is make sure you're eating enough, which may be surprising for a lot of people. Like I think some people think they need a very small amount of calories and food in general, but um, yeah, we need a lot more than we think. Um, I don't know if you know Summer Inanen, but I, she always says like grown ass women need a lot more food than they think. And I would say like grown ass everyone, all peoples, all genders, we all need more food than we think. And um, it just, you know, it requires more than we think to actually have enough food. And then from there, um, I know most people focus on carbs and carb elimination or sugar elimination. And then they go down the rabbit hole of all the diets that have that kind of way, which are really slick and hot selling right now. But I think taking away carbs and or sugar is putting the cart before the horse. Mm-hmm. Because for about six to eight weeks, it seems that doing a carb or sugar kind of elimination or, you know, change, it seems to lower insulin levels, which we haven't really talked about it, but insulin is something that can be high for most people with PCOS. It's like 75 to 95% of people with PCOS have high circulating insulin. And, um, and so, yeah, the, it can kind of help with that for about six to eight weeks and it can help uh, lower blood sugar and blood pressure. Um, but you know, when we look at 12 weeks out, um, which is considered long-term research in PCOS world, oh my God. Hilarious, right? <laughs> That's um, it's still showing sh- some favorable things, but yet the dropout rate in those research studies are really high. Um, mm. and so it makes one pause, you know, like, right. hmm. because a lot of researchers that are publishing data that's long-term i.e. 12 weeks in PCOS land, um, when a person drops out, they'll just use the last um, weight as uh, all the weights moving forward, right. which is really should be a no-no, but that's really common in weight science literature. Wow. But when we look at a year, what we basically find is, um, and there's very little long-term research, which I, for me, long-term is two to five years out, but even one year out, there's not a lot with PCOS. There is more with diabetes, which has, you know, insulin levels that are not as high as PCOS, but you know, it's a similar kind of, um, experience. And then we have, um, just general weight loss research that's two to five years out that basically shows, yeah, we know that diets don't work that, you know, the diets we have so far, they don't work for most people. What we don't know is how long it's going to take to regain the weight and how much they're going to regain 
plus, right. you know, we know that most people are going to regain it. And then a third to two thirds are going to gain more and, uh, or regain more rather. So yeah. So the, put, cutting out the carbs long-term just doesn't, doesn't stick. And so right. what, um, my clients have found is instead of focusing on carbs, what we'll do is let's make sure you're eating enough, not measuring your weight. And then, um, people with PCOS probably just need more protein. So where can we experiment with that? And I find for uh, many people, not everyone, but for many people with PCOS, if they have um, a, a significant amount of protein at breakfast, and when I say significant, I mean like the amount of protein that's maybe in some Greek yogurt or a couple eggs or something like that, um, along with whatever you're going to have, whether it's like oatmeal or cinnamon toast crunch or whatever, you know, I, right. that doesn't matter, but just having... Right. Um, a significant amount of protein at breakfast, and then the same amount um, an hour or two before bed, that does a lot to lower insulin levels. And then um, after that, I help, I really want people to explore like, what can we do to help bring down your insulin? And some people need to go on medication, some people go on supplements, and some people do both. But I encourage people to really maximize those tools as much as they have access to and are willing to do. And um, from there, like, that is like such a big chunk of the management. Yes. How empowering is that? That just adding protein, yeah. twi- a little more protein twice a day is like a lifestyle intervention that is very doable and about adding more nourishment, right? Yes. That can actually support your body. Yeah. Because we're not, we're not like these robots. We're not like living in a Petri dish. And you know, if we were robots or lived in a Petri dish, taking away carbs or sugar, would bring down insulin levels. Sure. But like, that's just not sustainable. And what I know is like focusing on ways to lower insulin that is not like torture. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because really, if, if, if someone has high circulating insulin, like someone listening with PCOS whose insulin levels are really high, they may walk past like a loaf of bread or a plate of brownies and be like, Oh my God, I got to eat that. And it won't be like, that's a craving. Like I don't have PCOS, you know, I'm like, Mm -hmm. I may have a craving for something. But um, what people have taught me is that, Julie, it feels primal. It's like, I'm going to die if I don't eat mm-hmm. that whole loaf of bread. Um, and so what if you're not allowed to have that thing? <laughs> so right, um, and, right. and again, the, the restriction, I didn't mention all the research, but basically cutting out those things is just is predicting the binge eating behaviors. And so um, it's because in the end, it just makes insulin higher instead of lower right. and the craving right. more intense. Right. And so it's like, ends up being a- So in the beginning, it lowers insulin, but it, yeah. but eventually it's, the body's like, this isn't going to fly long-term. So yeah. And that's like super well-established in the research. It's super, yes. sab- like it's, it's not even debatable anymore. You know, it's like, right. we need to move on guys. Okay. Right. I think right. guys, because it's mostly, you know, old white men. It's mostly, mostly guys. <laughs> Um, the other fascinating thing is that hearing that uh, people with PCOS are tend to have binge eating disorder, I think that most people assume that the PCOS is caused by the binge eating disorder mm-hmm. as opposed to the fact that people with PCOS are told to diet and that that puts them often into kind of a bad relationship with food. Yes. And, right? and or- yes, for sure. And hearing you say that back, what I was mentioning earlier, it makes me want to just mention is that there is a very, um, like the fat phobia in eating disorders and in PCOS research really, um, I feel like it just 
makes our understandings of things not actually accurate. Because I work with so many people who have anorexia nervosa with PCOS. Mm -hmm. And I think people in eating disorders and in PCOS research think, well, you know, people with PCOS are all in larger bodies, false. And people (laughs) with anorexia are all in smaller bodies. So why am I going to research both of those? But um, I have a feeling that's another one that's just not established enough in literature. But um, yeah, so if you don't identify of having binge eating disorder, um, or you've been told it's more quote unquote atypical, you know, which it's really the more typical um, anorexia, then yeah, that's also like the super common way. And, and I feel like part of not all of it, but for some people, a really big portion of their eating disorder experience is, is like how you experienced it, Caroline, is like they were told they had to manage it. And really, instead of managing it, just fucked it all up. Is what I right. So, yeah. I love that. And you feel horrible about your, your, it feels so scary to try and do something good for your health and basically have your body fight back, but then you blame it on yourself and you think it's your own willpower for years yeah. and years on end. It's really, really scary and upsetting. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really dark, bad place to be. And there are so many people who are experiencing that and think that it's just their fault and they need to try harder. And it's just a cycle that, that doesn't end unless you step out of the cycle. You know, I, um, one of the people that I've been learning from for probably 20 years now is Deb Beauregard. And she, um, at a conference, I remember her mentioning that, um, that she felt like her body, um, was, passed down to her from her ancestors that probably were more evolved than people who died from famines and stuff like, like her ancestors passed down something, a quality that helped her survive, her, her like generation survive. And I've wondered that about that for PCOS. I, I don't know if Deborah, I don't, she's never said she has PCOS. So I don't, I, you know, I'm not questioning that she has it or not, but what I'm thinking about people with PCOS, because um, so many people will be restricting to a level that seems not conducive with living and their body weight doesn't change. I wonder how much of it is it like, uh, they're just evolutionarily like more evolved. And, you know, I have no I background so. in evolutionary biology. I think but- so. Wait, I also, somebody sent me something on Instagram. Again, I just, I get so much and I don't know how easily I could find it, but it was basically a study or a paper or someone talking about how it's an ancient disease and it actually was something, and it's been recorded, these symptoms, but it actually haven't had an evolutionary advantage. And the people did still did have kids, just not as many. And that was also an evolutionary advantage. It's fascinating. I'll send it to you. I'll try oh, to find it and put it, it in the notes. It's fascinating. Um, I read, I read, like I opened it on my phone and read it like from Instagram DM. And I was like, whoa, this is fascinating. I need to like save this and hopefully I can well, find it. But, so the thing I think about then too, if someone's feeling so much shame because of binging or they feel addicted to food or there's like they just feel like they have no willpower what if the reframe then was I'm just like my ancestors have passed down something to me to help me survive like this is a a visual or like this this behavior is like a way for me to connect with survival and that's your body is um trying to keep you alive it's feeling threatened and it's being traumatized by diets and it's yeah it's trying to keep you a successful human keep you alive yeah that's a huge really important reframe Mm -hmm. that you know and that's what I started to do as well to be like no no no, my body is just 
It actually knows what it's doing. And that it helps so much because the panic and the shame of feeling like you're a food addict and it's all your fault is horrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have a, a question that is based on a lot of questions that I get from people who have been diagnosed with PCOS and who are trying to leave behind dieting. And so this is kind of an amalgamation of a couple different people, but it's a very similar question that I seem to get over and over again. And they say that after a few months of trying to refeed their bodies and not dieting anymore and trying to get in tune with their hunger and actually feeding themselves, that they find that their periods normalize and that their sex drive returns. So they're, they're experiencing more hormonal balance and their cravings become normal, which is super exciting to people who felt very out of control with food for years on end. But a lot of them find that they start experiencing some more hair growth or hair growth, and that would be the androgens, that they had kind of seen go away when they were dieting. Um, and people have also mentioned body odor, like specific body odor, hormonal body odor coming back. And so they've asked me, I can see some things improving and I can see some things maybe looking like they're not improving. What does that mean? What do I do? Um, have you seen anything like that? And do you have any words of advice for people who might be afraid of that or experiencing something like that? So, okay, this is what I'm thinking about all that is when we combine malnutrition with PCOS, it will be in a way kind of how birth control, quote unquote, treats PCOS. You know, it basically um, controls the hormones. And when we are malnourished, our body, I mean, when we don't eat enough calories and fats and carbs, like basically our body cannot make hormones. Like it just, it can't do it. Mm -hmm. And so it just shuts them down along with, you know, things like bone marrow production, you know, <laughs> things we need, and so, um, so yeah, it, it basically then would make libido like mill and it also would make hair go away except for that like lanugo hair. Right. And so it makes sense that over time as while a person's nutritionally rehabilitating their body, that the, the cravings would start to go away. You know, I bet in the beginning, it wasn't quite like that. You know, for a lot of people I work with in the beginning, the cravings are more intense because they're yes, both like, yes, yes, feed me. And yes, but then a couple months into it, yeah. that's when things start to, yeah, yeah. Depending how long a person needs or how long they were malnourished, you know, it may take a few months or a year to like replete. But then, yeah, I can see why like estrogen would normalize. So then estrogen would be in the way that the body um, would typically experience it. But then also because of the genetics of PCOS, you know, PCOS starting in the hypothalamus, it um, would make things like um, serotonin levels and, you know, our mood would be better. But then it also would um, make testosterone like it would have been without the malnutrition right. and buffering it. And so it would, that would also increase. And so I also would think, say too, PCOS is a chronic condition. We don't have a cure for it. And so what works, quote unquote, works for someone in the, their teens or 20s or 30s is not going to probably work in their 40s and 50s because it's chronic, which means it's always getting worse. So part of it may just be a time lapse kind of thing. And, right. um, but yeah, having more being sweatier, smellier from the sweat than maybe your peers who identify as female or, um, 
the what is the way they're saying like the hair growth like those are all things because the testosterone is normalizing for that person maybe not right. what they want it to be but it's normalizing and right um right. and so that's when you know finding ways to treat the PCOS if they're wanting to lower their testosterone can be helpful without malnutrition mm-hmm. because there are ways right. to do that that are not that are not like starvation you know right. but, I mean starvation is right. the way to do it but I mean that's just not what I would but, recommend. No, I mean, there are, there are side effects. There are yeah. other side effects. Remember bone marrow, bone marrow. And I, bone marrow. And I think that it's also a really good example of health not being this black and white thing. Yes. It's not like healing one area heals every area, you know? That's such a good point. Um, I know you have to go, but I, this has been amazing. I'm really excited for everyone to hear it. And where can everyone find you? So the, the best place to just find the hub of everything that Julie's doing is on my website, and that's juliedillonrd.com. And if you have PCOS or you don't, I have a podcast called Love Food that is just for anybody who has a complicated relationship with food. But then, <clears throat> excuse me, when I got to interview Caroline, of course, I got to interview you um, when I did a PCOS and Food Peace podcast, which is... Whoop, my microphone just fell. Excuse me. Uh, and see, the microphone was like, mic drop, Caroline. <laughs> Literally. But anyway, so um, you'll find that in the Love Food feed too. And, um, you know, I have lots of things on my blog. I had a grad student with PCOS. Um, her name's Kimmy Singh. She's now a dietitian. She wrote a ton of articles on my website for me that are research-based. Um, and you can find all those by just searching PCOS on my website. And you'll get a ton of blog posts that she wrote. Yay. Awesome. Okay. Um, and I will add lots of links um, to help you find Julie and to maybe look at some of the things that we talked about today, depending on how many things we can actually find <laughs> I love that it. we talked about today. It was so great to Thank- chat and connect and catch up. Um, thanks for letting me come on here. Thank you so much. I'm genuinely excited for everyone to listen. So I have all of the links that you could possibly need to find Julie in the show notes on my site and in the show notes of this actual episode. I also have that article that I referenced about PCOS being an ancient syndrome or disorder. Um, You can find that as well. And what I emailed Julie to follow up on is when I was listening back to the conversation we had when I was editing it, I heard her say that when you're starving, it it can suppress your testosterone. And then when you begin to eat normally again, that's when people with PCOS can experience their higher testosterone that is sort of like their normal in a way. And I also heard her say that, that starvation or not eating enough can raise testosterone. And she said that the raising testosterone was for hypothalamic amenorrhea, which actually is often misdiagnosed as PCOS. So that's really fascinating to just think about. But what that also means is that everybody's body responds differently to different things, which should be obvious, but we all seem to think that every everybody's going to react the same thing to this to, you know, to the same interventions. So we're all different. We're all diverse and we all need different things. So, but we all do need food and that's something that we should remember. So 
I am going to be bringing a couple more interviews your way in the next couple months. I hope that they will be helpful. I will also spend a little bit more time doing my usual rambling about nothing. So one of the things when I posted last month's episode onto Instagram, I actually posted some of the bad reviews and one of them was that I ramble a lot about nothing. And so I, I, I was like, what if I actually changed my podcast to something about rambling a lot about nothing or conversations with my dog and just really lean into it and just go in that direction, which I do. I mean, I've been saying this for a long time, but I am going to zoom out and I am going to pivot a little bit where we're going to be still talking about diet culture, but it's going to be within a, the larger context of self-help dogma, you know, but, um, I, you know, so maybe this podcast is really called Caroline rambles a lot about nothing. I also, uh, had lunch with Evelyn Triboli, one of the co-authors of intuitive eating today. And she was really, really lovely. Um, yeah, that's all I have to say, guys. I'm like a little bit disheartened right now and I don't feel like rambling a lot about nothing because it's just exhausting. I don't know. It's exhausting to have people constantly telling you how much they hate what you do. It just is. I'm just like a little bit burnt out on it and I just, I've been saying this for a while, but I'm trying to figure out what's really exciting to me going forward and I know that I'm going to figure it out and I know I'm going to I know it's going to happen and I feel that it's going to happen soon, but I'm just like a little bit blah. I don't know. I'm really thankful to everyone who's listening. I really hope that this helps and was illuminating and I'm going to come back at you with something exciting and with like plenty of rambling, my happy rambling. But for now, I'm tired. And I need to go keep writing a little bit more so I can really hone in on what my next fucking project is. And that's just how it is. Oh, God. Here we go. Here we go. Make your presence known, Molly. She's outside. My door's open. She's just barking at my neighbors because she wants to play with them. All right. Thanks for your patience, friends. Thanks for your patience. Check the show notes. If you haven't read my book, read my book. It's better than my podcast. That's what one of the reviews said that too. They were like, uh, she's a way better writer than podcaster. And I was like, you're half right. You're right. You are right. My book is better than this for sure. I'm just, I'm just a little disheartened. That's all, but I'll get my heart back and I'll be back. Goodbye.